Hello and welcome to today's show. We are starting a brand new read-through series. This is something I've been wanting to do for years now. You might remember a while back, I read the entire novelization of The Return of the Living Dead, one of my favorite films of all time. And uh, we, we went over the whole history of it and the differences between the novelization and the film of which the novelization is based on and its wacky, wild history. And we also talked about the value of novelizations or the value that novelizations can have. And before we start and begin with the novelization of this movie, I want to quickly talk about that value one more time in case you forgot. We've done another read-through. It's a secret show that's only available to Patreons and YouTube member, casualty, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Okay, um, it's not, it's a Stephen King book, so check that out, but that's not public and it won't ever be public. This, however, eventually will make its way to YouTube publicly, properly for, for everybody. Um, the value of novelization. So what often happens is, and you know, this has kind of gone the way of the dodo. Yes, novelizations are still around in some semblance in some form, one form or another, but um, novelizations used to be a very popular thing. There was a big market for novelizations because what would happen is it was just another way of marketing the movie and the story, tying in, you know, to the book market to uh, uh, of of your of your film. And what would happen is the screenplay of which all films are based on, most of them at least, was adapted by an author, sometimes somebody who was directly related or connected to the movie and sometimes not they would be adapted by an author into a you know pulp paperback novelization of the movie form that's what it is novelization turning the movie into a novel now what makes these things these books so valuable is that they often contain all sorts of information that's not available in the movie Often when a script gets shot, things get left, you know, on the page, they get left on the cutting room floor, you know, um, inner, inner machinations of characters, you know, motivations of characters, the backstory, all sorts of stuff that is supposed to be communicated visually gets, um, has way more detail, uh, attached to it. And what will happen is a lot of that stuff that, that gets cut away from the movie or doesn't make it to the film or is not like on front street within the movie ends up finding its way into the novelization. So, and then, you know, the thing about movies is movies are these incredible pieces of media where, you know, the final product is not going to resemble the initial vision as a filmmaker myself, who has made two films that are far cries from what the original visions of them were. I can tell you that this is what happens. Movies get re, uh, uh, remade in so many ways on the way to the finished product. You have the script, right? Then you have production. The movie gets rewritten again. Then in the edit, when you find, sometimes you find the movie in the edit, it gets rewritten again. And then sometimes the fourth time with the marketing. But, uh, you know, the fourth one's kind of like a, a, a misnomer in a way. But the point is, is that these things are ever changing, ever morphing. And the thing that, you know, I, all of us, fandom, what we love about movies, you know, the things that we love about movies 
um, we get projected into this world full of stuff that we just want to know everything about. And that's the thing with some, some of my favorite cult films. It's like, I want more. I want more than I'm like Roy Batty in uh, Blade Runner. I want more, you know, I want more. Give me more. I want to know everything. I want to know every little like nook and cranny, just like the misfits. I want to know everything about this, this story, this situation. Give me the backstory of this really cool character with this really cool haircut. And I want to know that character that was on screen for three minutes. What's his deal? Why, you know, and in the novelization of things, some of that stuff gets pulled out in, in some cases, there's some novelizations that are so drastically different from the film versions that it's like it's like astounding it's really astounding and there's a list of them somewhere online and they are highly sought after novelizations are highly sought after for this reason so people will seek out the novelizations because they want a different view at their favorite movies case in point mad max mad max when it came out you know it ended up being in the guinness book world records because it broke a hundred million dollars worldwide it was made on a budget of four hundred thousand dollars which was three hundred thousand dollars which was nothing you know next to nothing a pittance by uh, a medical er doctor named george miller he wasn't a filmmaker initially I mean, he was he he dabbled in filmmaking but you know that was not his profession i should say and he decided he wanted to make a film he wanted to make a film that had that was sort of um, inspired by car accidents that he would see as a medical doctor. And what he came to realize is, you know, he put together the money to do this. And what he came to realize is that we can't really, he could not really do what he wanted to do with the resources that he had. And, um, you know, that in, that ended up sort of impacting what the movie was going to be. He realized, hey, what if we just set this movie in the future? You know, um, what had just happened, there was a gasoline shortage. There was this whole gasoline shortage that happened in the 70s. And, you know, the thing about gas is it's kind of like, okay, it's kind of like that movie Threads, which is about nuclear destruction. But Threads, the title Threads is meant to represent the threads of civilization, what happens when they snap? And one of the threads of civilizations is gasoline, power, the, the, the ability to power your vehicles so that you can, you know, get things to where they need to go. And that's for everything. Think about food lines, all the food that we have, places where we don't grow food, but have food in abundance because trucks carry that food. What if all of these threads were to suddenly snap and civilization would go haywire and people and suddenly gasoline becomes one of the most, you know, precious resources. It was this kind of thinking that made George Miller realize that he could tell his story about car accidents, you know, or whatever this, this tale of with car chases and stuff, but sort of, you know, done in the future, you know, uh, futurize it kind of like star Wars, like a used future. It's like, Hey, the vehicles can look busted up. Everybody can look busted up. Things can be crumbled. Civilization is crumbling. And that works for us because it stretches our buck. Because there's one way to make your movie, you know, feel and look, you know, like it, 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 like there's more going on than what there is. And that is to tell a movie that's happening in an apocalyptic future. Growing up for me, I've said this often, Mad Max, the Mad Max films, that trilogy, first of all, that's the reason why I wear my leather jacket. I love the Ramones and I love punk rock, but my 
leather heritage comes from the fact that I am a fucking die hard Mad Max fan. Mad Max to me is my Star Wars, was my Star Wars. Next to Star Wars, of course, I love Star Wars as well. But Mad Max, that was my jam growing up. I loved Mad Max. I inhaled those films. I love the idea of new civilizations and new cultures developing out of the uh, destruction of civilization as it was. It was an it, what an interesting idea. This sort of like uh, this return to tribalism. Just all this, all these different amazing ideas that came came from. Uh, you know, the apocalypse. And so for me, the gold standard of all apocalyptic fiction, without a doubt, hands down, is the Mad Max films. And yes, you know, there aren't a lot of them to, to, to really speak of. I mean, they, you know, you have stuff like Waterworld and, you know, you have, you, there's, there's other stuff out there, but all of it pales compared to Mad Max. Now, the thing is, Mad Max is this weird sort of thing where it, it sort of develops too. Like it, it's sort of, you know, what it, the first film is not I indicative of what it is going to become. And by the time we get to Fury Road, I mean, it just does not like everything just sort of evolves and gets bigger. And, and, you know, obviously with money and, you know, sort of pulling on the idea further and further and further. And you know, what's amazing I almost wish they would go back now. Go back. Give me an HBO Max doesn't exist anymore. Max, whatever. The 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 stu the, the 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 whoever is left that used to make all those incredible HBO prestige shows, go and tell the story of the Breaker Squad that was trying to prevent the crumbling of civilization. As civilization is collapsing on itself, an elite squad of road warriors, uh, the best of the best in in the police uh, of the police in Australia um, go up against biker gangs. And that's kind of the world that the original Mad Max is set in. And the best of the best of the best is Max Rokitansky. And, you know, it's your classic, you know, hero, hero revenge story. His, his family is killed, at, which sends him into, you know, into a frenzy. And, you know, what's interesting about, the Mad Max films, all of them, all of them are almost kind of like silent films. Yes, there is dialogue, but the, 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 the movies are not driven by talking and dialogue. They are driven by the score. They are driven by the visual action. Uh, and if you look at each Mad Max film, you don't even need to hear what they are saying to know what is going on and what you're supposed to be feeling at any given point in time and that's kind of like it's kind of amazing if you really want to watch just wonderful visual like the, the perfect representation of what cinema is supposed to be in my opinion especially modern action cinema i would love i would also love a, a straight remake of mad max i feel like the thing about mad max the original mad max is that it's kind of flawed in the sense that i love it don't get me wrong i love everything about it but the truth is that because they didn't have, remember I was talking about they had limited resources, they were not able to film 15% of the screenplay, uh, particularly towards the end. And if you notice, the movie builds and builds and builds probably till about the 60-minute mark. And that's when Max loses his family and the last 20 minutes, which kind of turns into the third act, almost becomes an afterthought, you know? Um, and it's a shame because they could not do 
what they wanted to do. And that's in part because the stuff they were doing was really dangerous. If you ever see photos of, you know, and especially when they got into doing road warrior stuff, people got hurt. People got really, really hurt. But when you look at, at photos of some of the ways that they were trying to film this movie on a shoestring budget, at least shoestring by 1978, 1979 standards, it's incredible. The reason why Mel Gibson got the role is because he had had a bar fight the night before and he was all black and blue during his audition and they felt like he just was the perfect, you know, guy to play Mad Max. And he was, man. I mean, this is why, you know, Mel Gibson's a very problematic guy for us Jews. Uh, and he's one of those guilty little pleasures. Yeah, I know he hates me. I know he he hates us and he's a piece of shit human being, but God damn, if he isn't Mad Max. <laughs> What do you, what do you want from me? What do you, if John John of Doom, if he was here right now, he'd just be shaking his head. John of Doom hates Mel Gibson for this reason. Whatever. In any case, I, I appreciate the sentiment, John. I do, I do. Um, so they didn't get to film. Fifteen percent of the movie didn't get filmed at all, and it always left me wondering what if, what was there, what else is missing? You know, there's all this story that's going on in Mad Max. If you watch Mad Max with the subtitles on, you will be watching a completely different movie. And for years, I didn't even know half of what was going on in Mad Max. I just liked it. Actually, the, the truth is I grew up on the American dub, which is hated by a lot of Max fans. But for me, that was my man. That that was like my childhood. So I love the the American overdub. And you know, half the time, even with the American overdub, you kind of don't know what's being said or what's going on. Uh, so to watch that movie with the subtitles was like a whole different experience. It was really eye opening. I got to really sort of understand a lot more about what was going on and and in, in the drama and this that and the other and the movie really is kind of like a character study it's almost like a drama piece more than it is an action film yes there are action sequences in it but um you know and it it takes its time it really cooks it cooks and it cooks and it cooks we get this incredible sequence where max is talking about his father as he's bonding with his wife jesse and their their kid sprog um, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of really good stuff there. And then all of the action gets shoehorned at the end. Now, what's another interesting note about the Mad Max movie is that the tail scene when, when, when Max, uh, handcuffs Johnny, the boy's ankle to the, uh, bumper of the, of the car wreck, he gives him a hacksaw and he creates the situation where he needs to hack through his leg. It is that very situation that ended up becoming the inspiration for the first Saw film by James Wan and Lee Wennell, Wannell, who happens to be Australian. So there you go. Um, in any case, I I always thought, I always thought that like, you know, I mean, I love, again, I love the fact that there is, that that the film is what it is as it is. Like I've come to love and appreciate it, but there's a part of me that's always left wondering, what if, what could it have been? And I think reading this novelization, not only are we going to learn so a ton of things that are, that I know are there because people have said, you got to read the novelizations. There's all sorts of, of tidbits 
left in there. So that's going to be interesting, but also we're going to get a better sort of view of what that, what if could have been if, if George Miller had gotten to do what he wanted to do. Um, the novelization is written by someone named Terry K. I tried looking them up. I couldn't find anything about them, at least a Terry K that spells their last name with K a Y E. Uh, I could have sworn Terry K was actually involved with the Mad Max production and maybe they were down the road at some point, but I don't know. Uh, the story was originally by uh, the story was was bought, uh, uh, thought up by George Miller, uh, as well as producer Byron Kennedy, who would later die um, before they could start production on Fury Road, uh, not Fury Road, Thunderdome, uh, leaving uh, a distraught George Miller to turn over the directing reins to an, another guy named George, in fact, and help make the movie. And that's why a lot of people don't like Beyond Thunderdome. I love Beyond Thunderdome. That's a, we'll, we'll we're eventually, hopefully, we will get to Beyond Thunderdome because I got all three novelizations, motherfucker. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We're, we're going to get started here in a minute. The screenplay was written by James McCausland and George Miller. James's name is is named first so i would imagine that he's the guy who um he's the guy who probably wrote the uh the, the meat of it that sort of thing um you know it was byron kennedy who was more of the filmmaker than it was george miller uh and you know they made they did make some short films together and that is what allowed him to dip his toe in the water and they said okay let's let's do it let's uh let, let's make it happen um and uh, yeah, it's it. And then, you know, the thing again, to go back to the filming for a minute, um, it was it was very much like a, a guerrilla filmmaking experience. Sorry, I'm just trying to be extra thorough here. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. You know what? Let's, let's just get let's just get into it. Let's get into it. That's enough of an introduction. So we're going to see what the differences are in the novelization. It's 200 pages long. And uh, here we go. I hope you're ready. I'm ready. Let's do this. Let us. Here we go. Here it is. Where is it? Where is it? There we are. That's what we wanted. All right. I'm ready. All right. Here we have it. Mad Max. I'm going to do my best. When the gangs take over the highways, pray he's out there somewhere. This is my favorite Mad Max poster, by the way. Uh, I don't know if it's the original Mad Max poster, but it's my favorite one. This is like when I see on the poster, I'm like, that's who I wanted to be. Like, that's who the, the character that I love. This leather clad, badass, you know, dude with the shin guards right here. And he's got the the arm. Uh, sorry, he's got the shoulder pad. He's got his double barrel shotgun and the magnum on the side. And he just looks super frigging cool. It's like. Kind of, he kind of looks like a punk rocker, but he's also like this crazy future cop in, in the lawless future. He's a lawman trying to bring law to the future. The, the only the, the only time when 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 cops are cool. Right. <laughs> um, let's see when let's see when this was published. OK, so this was published. It, the first printing was in March of 1979. I mean, that's that's crazy, dude. So this is like. This is as fresh as it gets. This wasn't some this wasn't some afterthought either. Uh, okay, here we go. Let let's let's begin reading chapter one. And again, I will do my oh, let me shut the door over there real quick. I will be right back in two shakes of the legs now. All right, let's do it. 
The road lay like a ribbon carefully stretched across the sparse, barren landscape. Six lanes in either direction separated by a no-man's land of brown gravel, empty cans, and scraps of paper. It sliced through what had once been a rich, expensive grazing land. The cattle that had once roamed the area where the road was little more than a country lane were long since gone. Victims of a society which now relied on laboratory-produced proteins for nourishment and fast-food pulp for taste. The few animals surviving were the last of the grazer, graziers. The few animals surviving were the last of the graziers had walked off their land to find work on production lines, had long ago been picked off by the Armalite gangs. Peculiar, fearsome groups of young men named for their high-powered rifles they carried in racks along the rear windows of their supercharged pickup trucks. Because this particular road had been the first of the superhighways constructed by the central bureaucracy, it had become a favorite haunt of the Armalite gangs. Every Friday night, after clocking off from their mindless jobs in the useless factories, which threatened to suffocate almost every city with vast palls of smoke, they would battle through the chaos of their interurban freeways and break for freedom of the transcontinental one. Stereo systems blaring and engines screaming, they'd throw their pickups hundreds of miles through the night to rendezvous at a spot far away from the terrors of the cities. Once out there, surrounded by nothing more than a black tarmac and the blighted landscape, they'd set about systematically creating their own kind of terror. First, it had been the mangy cattle. When they were disposed of their targets, because of uh, when they were disposed of their targets, became the what? When they were disposed of their targets, became the massive road trains barreling down the Transcon One at close to a hundred miles an hour. Some enterprising, some enterprising gang member had hit up the idea that a carefully arranged crossfire could knock out enough of the steel-toughened tires. Look how they spell tires. T-Y-R-E-S. That's the other way of spelling it. Uh, could knock out enough of the steel-toughened tires to send the unfortunate rig off the road and into the scrub. Crashing at that speed, the impact generally sent the driver and his companions off to eternity. The Armalite gangs, often with 30 or 40 pickups, had found it not only great fun, but a useful way to supplement their incomes. Like the, rec like the wreckers of Penzance, who centuries before had guided ships to their destru destruction and pillaged the wrecks, the Armalite gangs would strip the road trains bare in a matter of hours, stowing tons of merchandise uh, beneath uh, tarpaulins in the back of their small rigs, then disappearing in the night to plan their next attack. The combination of profit and, excite and excitement proved attractive. The number of gangs grew. The rig drivers, many of whom used lar the large cabin of their prime mover as a mobile home for their family, learned that the law of the road in sorry learnt the law of the road in the early days when one of their colleagues survived the initial crash. As he crawled from the wreck, he provided one more target for the gathering vultures. The drivers took turns. Sorry, the drivers took to traveling with a small arsenal within reach and mounted along the top of their rigs, massive spotlights, which were capable of turning the road and the area 
on either side in Broadway. Sorry, massive spotlights which were capable of turning the road and the area on either side in broad daylight. Of course, the searing glare from the lights played havoc with oncoming traffic. But the first rule that anyone learned on Transcon 1 was survival. By the way, quick side note here that I want to make mention. George Miller eventually would, I should have said this at the beginning. This is what I should have said at the end when I was stumbling, trying to figure out if there's anything else to say. George Miller um, is so detailed when it comes to backstory. He writes pages and pages of pages. Every single character has a backstory, especially as the films move on, maybe not as early as this, but I want to believe that all of this here is, is somewhere in you know, the notes or the side notes, the materials that were used to, to, to trans, to turn this into a novelization. You know what I mean? All of this story probably came from George Miller and his writing companion or Byron uh, when they were coming up with the story. So uh, I just want to mention that he is so meticulous and detailed with, with creating the mythology behind these stories. Let me continue. However, the most effective deterrent against the Armalite gangs had little to do with the drivers themselves. After the massive all-national retail corporation declared Transcon 1 off-limits to all of its rigs, the cost of consumer goods soared throughout the country. The public outcry was so loud that the central bureaucracy meeting in, a, in an emergency session authorized the establishment of an elite group of highway patrol cops whose sole function was to destroy the Armalite gangs by any means at their disposal. Their name, the Breaker Squad, was coined by the controller himself, the head of the central bureaucracy, who demanded that his ministers break the stranglehold, which was choking Transcontinental One. Wow, that's crazy. So the gangs which were doing this for fun were destroying supply routes and then the the corporations and the ministers whatever they they were the ones who formed the breaker gang in order to break up the gangs and that's the beginning of mad max so cool i see i i didn't even i didn't know about that formation um i'd always wondered how it formed in that kind of way the police had moved swiftly Within their own ranks, they found a large number of young men who had the necessary qualifications, a love of fast cars and hard driving, combined with the cunning and disregard for life necessary to beat the Armalite gangs at their own game. They took Armalite. That's how you say it, right? Armalite? Yeah, Armalite. They took these men from all over the country and sent them to a two-week camp where they were forced to push themselves and their specially equipped cars beyond all conceivable limits. 11 out of the 100 recruits discovered their limits and were dead by the time the course was over. Their cars shattered and their bodies smashed beyond recognition. After that, 10 days of training with the Special Commando Task Force, learning their brutal form of unarmed combat and a week on the firing range seemed like child's play. The Breaker Squad in 40 more modified, sorry, the Breaker Squad in 40 modified police compacts with crude but effective armor plating, long range tanks and V8s, which could put them over 150 miles an hour without protest, met the first of the Armalite gangs just before 2 a.m. on Saturday morning on the Transcon, not far from where Max, Mad Max to his friends, now stood beside his police pursuit car. Police intelligence had informed the squad that 30 or more Armalite rigs were planning to leave 
Expo City, Expo City, Expo City, I guess. Police intelligence had informed the squad that 30 or more Armalite rigs were planning to leave Expo City 320 miles to the north for a series of major hits along a section of the Transcon that cut through a jumble of low, rugged hills. A police reconnaissance plane using classified infrared tracking equipment had picked them up without any difficulty and radioed their rendezvous position to the chief of the breaker squad. Working to plan, the police allowed the gang their first kill, then barreled in on them while they were stripping the wreck. The speed and strength of the police took the gang members completely by surprise. Most of them were congregated around the wreck, more than 50 yards from their rigs, and their first instinct when the police arrived, bathing the whole scene in searchlights, was to make a break for their pickups. The commanding voice of the chief through the PA ordered them not to move. Two shots quickly pinned down one of the gang who disobeyed. It was enough to convince most of the 30 or so larrikins, I don't know what larrikins means, uh, that they were playing right out of their league. One of the gangs standing next to his rig managed to get in and start the engine, only to have his front tires shot out before he could even attempt crashing through one of the police roadblocks. Five other gang members with two rifles between them crouched behind the wreck. A cop stationed with binoculars on a nearby hill radioed a warning. They were ordering into op- uh, they were ordered into the open by the chief. And that, to their disappointment of most of the squad, was that. Less excitement than you find while patrolling any of the 100 streets in Expo City after midnight, or before, come to that. But after the first easy victory, the Breaker Squad had more than its share of action. Other gangs quickly became aware of its existence, of, uh, quickly became aware of the existence of the elite police force, and never in the eight months it took to eradicate the gangs after that first raid. Did the cops take them by surprise or without a fight? The police were forced to split into small, more vulnerable groups in order to cover all the most dangerous spots along the length of the transcon. The gangs posted lookouts before they even thought of trying a hit, and the police would find themselves playing a supercharged cat and mouse game for weeks on end. On at least two occasions, small groups of cop cars were ambushed, The gang members were never a match for the speed and ferocity of the quickly battle-hardened breaker squad. But by that time, the last of the gangs had decided it was safer to sock the streets of the cities. Only 62 of the original squad of 89, which had taken to the road, had survived. Survived. One of them was Mad Max. So I guess Mad Max is called Mad Max even before he goes mad from people killing his family, from, from the toe cutter killing his family. But it's interesting how all of this stuff is not in the movie. The, does the movie need it ultimately? Like, I guess not. The movie works fine on its own. But what's amazing is what's so amazing. It's like it. It's like pure, again, pure cinema. A few years from now, that's all you get. You don't know anything about civilization crumbling. It's just cops versus these outlaw gangs, and that's it. Here we get so much more. Imagine if there was just a little, like a scroll. That just gave us that information and then it cuts to a few years from now. And then suddenly everything we see in Mad Max is informed by that, by all of this. It just, it might, it would, it would elevate, it would definitely elevate what is being said. So it's interesting how words 
can influence the images that you're seeing and elevate them in a, in a way. Like, look, if you look at a brick wall and you just see a brick wall, you go, oh, it's a brick wall. But if you have a scroll that happens before and you say seven men were shot dead against this brick wall, and then you see that same picture of the brick wall, the way that you think about that brick wall is suddenly transformed. This is the place where seven men lost their lives. What were those men thinking about right before the bullets left the guns and traveled into their bodies and they fell dead? You know what I'm saying? So it kind of like it recontextualizes everything. So, man, already I'm pleased just after reading that first chapter. Let's go on to chapter two, shall we? It was only 6 a.m., but Max was already on to his fourth cigarette of the day. We never see him smoke in the movie. He flicked the ash from it and slammed the door of his black police interceptor closed before walking slowly to the front of the car and lifting his buttocks onto the bonnet. He gazed down the black length of the transcon to a spot about half a mile away where almost seven years ago, as a brash and smart 18-year-old, he'd shot out the tires of the Armalite rig during the first bus. So he's 25. He's 20. Uh, what does he say? What, seven years ago. Yeah, seven years ago. So he's like 24, 25 in, in the movie Mad Max. He shot out the tires of the Armalite rig during that first bus. The best shot, the best shot that damn squad ever had, he joked aloud. The only thing that mattered on the road then, he thought to himself, that and being as tough and as cunning as those bastards. Still tough, still cunning, but I wouldn't want to count too much on my skill with the hardware. Too old for that. Too old to go running around the countryside, getting involved in all that guerrilla warfare crap. Yeah, too old at 25. Give me a break. He continued out loud again. Wow, this is written really poorly. I'm sorry. Like I this is gonna this is gonna suck, I think. I don't know. Damn. Is this really for real? He continued out loud again. Let him go. Keep your head on your shoulders and go swimming. That's the only motto that will get you into your 30s, Max, he said with a laugh as he walked back to the car, opening the door and pulled his towel off the passenger seat. Can you imagine Mel Gibson in the movie Mad Max saying that? He began to walk down the incline towards the river, hesitated a second and then returned to the car. He leaned on the door and switched on the police radio, turning the full volume up full. Once a cop, always a cop. That's what they say, he muttered, heading for the river and welcome relief from the heat, already beginning to quiver across the asphalt of Transcon 1. Max was well into the midstream, alternately duck diving and stroking out against the current when the first of the day's all points broadcast blared from his radio. All units, sections 18 to 31, Transcon 1, 2, two offenders now entering your area. Presently pursued at high speed by highway patrol vehicle, wanted on charges including grievous bodily harm to police officer. Approach with extreme caution. Offenders have already seriously damaged four police cars and avoided two roadblocks. Descriptions to follow. Max had barely broken stroke as the message crackled across the water, but he had heard enough to realize that another bored car crazy kid had decided on what the cops had come to know as the big run, which was a wild chase along the Transcon 1 in which the kid behind the wheel of his overpowered V8 pitted all his driving skill, courage, and cunning against the massed strength and resources of the highway patrol. Okay, this is actually kind of cool. It was a game. I just didn't like that the way that that dialogue was. That was kind of annoying. It was a game which had been played often enough for Max to guess exactly what had happened. The kid 
would have prepared himself well several hundred miles to the south, tuning his car, fitting special road tires, loading the gas tanks to the full, and popping enough amphetamines to make sure he got the right buzz going in his head. He would then have headed out onto the Transcon 1, all the time twiddling the dial on his radio monitor until he picked up the frequency used by the highway patrol in that area. After all, half of the fun of a big run was to listen in on the mayhem and frustration you were causing and then taunt the cops with your CB. CB is like, that's like the radio, that whatever, the, the radio thing. After that, with all preparations made, it was just a matter of making contact, defying speed restrictions through the sleepy townships or forcing some day tripper off the road. The game ended when either the police managed to corner him and he crashed his car and he was well, sorry. The game ended when he either when either the police managed to corner him, he crashed, his car blew up, or he made it through sections 18 to 30 on the Transcon 1 and crossed the state line. Although years before the central bureaucracy had established the nationwide police force, they allowed the prosecution of offenders to remain in the hands of the states. Max, like every other cop, knew that if you arrested a person in one state and charged him with crimes committed in another, then all you had succeeded in doing was enmeshing yourself in a maze of legal technicalities and conflicting statutes, which almost invariably ended with the case being thrown out of court. This is so cool. Look at all the extra stuff we're getting. I, I'm, just, I'm so blown away by this. Sections 18 to 30 of the transcontinental superhighway, Highway 1, were 80 miles of superhighway overrun by freight rigs, speed-mad larrikins, hot-as-hell tow trucks, and patrolled by a handful of young cops in overwhelmingly overpowered pursuit cars. I mean, what Miller wanted to do versus what we see on the screen is so vastly different. Like, this paints such a different picture in my head. It, this is really frigging cool, man. Sections 18 to 31, four years in a row, it could boast more fatalities for every kilometer than any other superhighway in the country. Sections 18 to 31, the last blast for the kids who elected to make the big run. The big run! That could be its own frigging movie. And right now, there were just two out there who had done better than most. Just 80 miles to go. One crippled cop car in pursuit. Two more police units waiting to try cutting them off and mad Max Max. So this is kind of like the, this is where we, the night rider, I guess at the beginning, but they're not, I don't know. Maybe they're going to mention the night rider in a minute. Max dived towards the bottom for the last time surfaced and struck out for the shore. Slowly. He walked out slowly. He walked out of the river and up to the embankment the water streaming from his head down his powerful shoulders. He picked up his towel as the radio began to crackle out the descriptions. Further to all points broadcast, descriptions of the wanted offenders as follows. Note, the offenders are using a stolen police pursuit vehicle. Oh, shit, Max muttered to himself. Someone's going to have a nasty time trying to explain that to the chief. Our runner must have blown up his own unit and then outsmarted some fool cop. Back to the city beat for him, the bloody idiot. No wonder our friend's doing so well. Max felt the first thrill. Max felt the first thrill of the chase start to pump through him. He pulled his towel from his hair to listen to the rest of the broadcast. 
Driver identifies himself as Br Branson Bryson Williams, describing himself. Oh, the Knight Rider. He is the Knight Rider. Beware the Knight Rider as you look to the sky. <laughs> wow, he's 19 in this, though. Okay. Uh, he, describing himself as the Knight Rider, age 19, with both criminal and juvenile record, including rob robbery with violence, breaking and e break, enter, and steal malicious damage and three counts of assault with a knife long list of motoring offenses and known to be a highly competent driver repeating earlier warning to all units approach with extreme caution. He is in possession of a police issue, high velocity rifle and a police issue, 12 shot pistol. Max let out a laugh of derision, derision, derision. Oh, great. He's not only got a car, but we've armed him as well. And they wonder why we find it hard to grab him before they reach the line. The voice went on. Williams is, an, Williams is accompanied by an unidentified female aged about 15. Wow. So, oh my God, like so different in casting. Age 15 and dressed in a white t-shirt, blue jeans, and high-heeled shoes. Long brown hair parted in the middle. Offenders traveling at high speed and now estimated to be entering section 19. All units within target area are ordered to make every attempt to apprehend offenders before the state line. The radio, ca uh, the radio crackled off while the operator took a break before continuing with his lists of stolen vehicles, descriptions of wanted men, and the other paraphernalia, which Max had long ago given up on taking any notice of. All units, he sneered to himself. There's only Roop and Charlie. Those are the, that's Roop is, uh, Charlie talks with the voice box and Roop is the heavy set guy. And of course we know who Jim Goose is uh, larger than wife and twice as ugly. There's only Roop and Charlie in the pursuit car. Jim Goose, who's such a Yahoo, he should have gotten, got a mentally defective certificate instead of a 1100 CC police bike and me. Yeah, baby, the goose, actually that picture on the, that picture of that poster I was talking about. That's actually a picture of the goose, man. At 25, Max was the oldest and the best of the cops whose job it was to patrol the Transcon 1. He was what the chief called a magic pursuit cop who could combine remarkable driving skills, cunning, and downright violence when needed. With an overriding desire to preserve his own life, he was never guilty of the sheer recklessness and stupidity which wasted the lives of many young cops behind the wheel on the Transcon 1. For this reason... The chief himself, that's probably Fief, right, uh, had ordered Max in, as the last line of defense before the state line. If See, that now explains why he's waiting. He's posted up at the state line when the Knight Rider comes. This makes so much more sense. For this reason, the chief himself had ordered Max into the last line of defense before the state line. If anyone could grab the Larrikins who turned the Transcon 1 into an adventure land for, demented, uh, for the demented, before they made it to freedom, it was Max. He was, the chief often thought, a special kind of madness. He could drive himself and his car harder and tougher than any cop. And the chief, uh, sorry, he could, harder and tougher than any, sorry, let me take that line again. He could drive himself and his car harder and tougher than any cop the chief had ever known. But it wasn't part of the ignorance and foolishness which characterized so many of the do or die daredevils and simple-minded boy racers who ended up on his force. The chief, like Max, had realized a long time ago that if most of them hadn't decided to pull, pull on a blue uniform and become a bronze, and mind you, that talk of the bronze, all that stuff, that's kind of like based on 
a clockwork orange. He wanted terminology that resembled like the Droog way of speaking. George Miller did. Um, but bronze is like supposed to be like, instead of cop, you're a, like a copper, you're a bronze. Um, the chief, like Matt's, the chief, like Max, had realized a long time ago that, that if most of them hadn't decided to pull on the blue uniform and become a bronze, as the louts and hoons called them, then they would be out there fooling with cycle gangs or planning for a big run themselves. Max had once been like that, too, but he had been good enough, smart enough and quick enough as a young cop to survive on the road. And then he met Jesse. He'd lived with her for four years now, and two years ago, Sprague, his son, had been born. Unlike most of the cops on the Transcon and all of the crazies they had to contend with, Max was no longer set to self-destruct. Holy crap. In, what is that? In 12 pages, we just got more story and context about Mad Max than we get in the entire film of Mad Max. Um I'm going to stop there. I'm going to put a pin in it and we will be back with chapter three. Uh, I got to tell you, man, I am this, this turned out to be this. I'm stoked for this. This is frigging great. Uh, the writing isn't too bad. It's okay. I don't like a lot of that, uh, that, that spoken monologue sort of stuff. It just doesn't feel real. It feels a little contrite, but it's so interesting. And especially this part at the end where he says, you know, if they weren't in, if they if they weren't bronzes, then they would most likely be with the gangs. It just the this the dystopian future of this book is so much better than what we get in the movie. Uh, it's un it's unbelievable. They should take this and make this the blueprint for that HBO Breaker Squad series. It would be astounding, absolutely astounding. So tune in next time for a, another uh, read through of. Of, of of mad max uh mad max novelization and of course we we need to shout out riotstickers.com because riot sticker riot stickers is the bomb we have a special promotion get a thousand stickers for 79 dollars riotstickers.com backslash from us these stickers are printed on vinyl they're protected by uv coating which makes them perfect for the outdoor weather at least for five years um $79 for a thousand stickers. That's like seven cents a sticker. It's a steal. Link is down in the description. Do not sleep on this deal. Let's play out with the riotstickers.com and we will see you next time.